Season two is nigh, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Koch here, Chewing the Gristle podcast. It continues unabated. We got some powerful musical friends lined up. We're talking guitars, music, food, aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just chewing the diggity doggone gristle. We're going to have a fun episode today. A good buddy of mine who hails from England way, but now lives down in Florida. Truly one of the most glorious, toneful, and tasteful blues guitar players of his generation, or really any generation, Matt Schofield. Tune in, tune up, and let the good times roll. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another edition of Chewing the Gristle is at hand. Gregory Koch here. Joined by one of my favorite guitar players, uh, who lives down in Florida now, but he's actually from England, whereas uh, I think I first met you, Matt, uh, in Amsterdam, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I just wanted to say the, the tone that this man generates on a guitar is, uh, it, I'm going to say it's staggering. When I, you know, sometimes I'll just revisit after a while, and put something on, like, damn, it just makes one, as I said earlier in a previous take, which was so good, but unfortunately the inner Google played with us in a way that we had to start again. It makes one take pause. You're like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Oh, I know what's happening. Matt Schofield is scalding my brain with his powers. <laughs> so doggone it, my friend. How you doing down there? It's always fun to hang with you. What's happening down there in Florida? Uh, you know, just... Uh... Staying away from the crazy, you know, there's a lot of that in Florida. We all know that. So. Yes. There's a little <laughs> bit of that everywhere, my friend. There's a little oh, bit of cookie. Oh. But you know, the thing, the crazy thing about crazy is that all the crazies think everybody else is crazy. So it all kind of comes out in the wash. We're all crazy in one way or another. Right? And, well, that's a fact. In our own special crazy ways. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously during... We're all experiencing these strange, unprecedented times, at least in our lifetimes, of course, um, of, especially for musicians where we can't travel. So we have to do all kinds of different things in order to, you know, eat. Yeah, stuff pretty like much. That, pay, pay the rent. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in these in these COVID hours, as my kids um, Yeah, well, it's been like, unlike any other year of my adult life, really, you know, as somebody who's been on the road for, uh, well, I've been playing 30 years, I've been gigging 29 years, and so this, first of all, is the longest time I've not done a gig since I started doing gigs at the age of 13. So that just in and of itself is something to get your head around, you know? Right. Um, so then, you know, there's a period of like, well, personally, I had a huge lack of motivation uh, initially to do anything at all because it, I realized that my gigs are my motivation. It, I don't, how would I explain it? My, uh, my inspiration doesn't exist in a vacuum, you know, because I've always played music with other people. Right. Um, and that's how I learned. I mean, from age 13, I had a band and it was playing together with other human beings. So right. that was a big adjustment. So for a while, I was just kind of like, well, this just sucks, you know? And uh, while everybody's doing their Facebook lives and all that kind of stuff, I wasn't. Or And I'm still not. That's not me, you know? Right. Uh, so it's taken a while to figure that out. So then I kind of embraced being off, actually, for a bit and uh, tried to look at the positive of that. Still playing guitar all the time, you know, but uh, I thought, well, normally, like the last few years, I've gone to a different country, like a transatlantic or trans-Pacific 
flight every month, every single month I've gone that far uh, right. at the minimum, you know? And uh, so, okay, I'm going to sleep in the same bed for a while here, you know? And uh, my, me and my girlfriend hadn't spent that much time together without one of us going somewhere, things like that. So in that regard, it was like, okay, let's see the positive experience that's possible here because, eh, you know... Other than that, it really sucks if you if you if your job. Well, I realize my job is as much as anything actually bringing people together. Right, right. That's, that's what we really do. Uh, be that just the band, to, just to play, or the audience, and going around the world. So when all that stops, you know, it took me a while to, to figure that out. So um, yeah. A few little things like this, you know, with various yeah. friends. I've been very happy that people have reached out because um, I'm not the guy to do this kind of thing myself, you know, but uh, always happy to be able to join um, folks such as yourself, Greg. So, um, yeah, and now I'm trying to figure out um, what we do in the meantime because, of course, this just keeps going on and on and on. And Correct. So, Correct. you know, I had gigs that I was supposed to do tour in in april that was like my biggest tour of this year which that was the first one to go so that got rescheduled to august well of course that's been and gone now and things rescheduled till next year so it then it really becomes a case of like well what am i actually going to do for possibly another year now still right so to answer your initial question after all that depressing sounding stuff um i've been basically giving myself a crash course in um home studio recording and right. which I'd, I'd never had or done before you know so i'd always been involved in my in the mix in the recording and mixing of my albums in a real studio with a mixing desk and all that kind of stuff but i'd never been up to speed really on computer recording or assembling something myself right. so um i just started to do that in february by chance and so everything that i'm sat in front of right now has been my world now for for uh, luckily, you know, I just got it together. I would, it would have been so difficult to do anything without that. So, um, so yeah, I've been learning to engineer and mix. And as I say, I've always been involved, but not um, 100% just me doing it. So it's a hell of a learning curve when you've... Oh, absolutely. I, I understand. Try, trying to get around doors and all the systems and, man, you know, so... Yeah. Um, but we're making progress. So I've managed to do some stuff. So... It's like, well, this is going to be the way probably that we make records as well as everything else for a while. So I'm hoping to come back with some content for people at the end of all of this, you know, to then, fingers crossed, we can take it on the road, you know? Exactly. And that's that's been kind of the interesting thing too, right? I mean, you, you, I've got a, a record in the can and it's actually been in some stage of completeness for a while um, exactly the same. And then you talk to folk, and they're like, "Well, why would you really? Why would you spend money on getting a publicist and all that kind of stuff?" So you'd have like a three month window where there'd be hoopla, and then you're not traveling, so there's really no way to capitalize on it. And I was like, "Yeah, but I'm still doing the stuff online all the time, so it's kind of like you're traveling, but you're not selling hard copy. You know, it's it's just one That's of those." That's exactly things. where I've been at. I've finished my most recent record, other than mixing it two years ago. You know, it's been in the works for two years and i was going to go mix it in march or april and and then that got put off of course and uh then you're like well it was all to do tours with that band really because the only reason to really release a record these days is to promote the other stuff that you do it's not like 
they only cost money to make records. Exactly. You know, and then you <laughs> pay the it off. Truth, absolutely. Yeah, you pay it off, and then you do another one, hopefully. You know? So, um, so yeah, it was like, well, that's also a waste of time. Oh, that's how it feels when all this starts, you know. So that's what I've been messing around with, getting getting through that and seeing what I can come up with myself, you know, just uh, um, and other things, you know. Obviously, True Fire, I should mention, has kept me right. wonderfully busy. They've been incredible during this time and uh, and actually really my only source of income. So uh, thanks to them and the people that buy those courses. And I, so I just ventured out over there for um, – a couple of weeks ago over to uh they're in st petersburg florida so it's just right that's, the that's on the other side of the state right so yeah that was really my first uh outing you know uh to go there and i went up my drummers in gainesville and of course he's built a home studio to cut tracks um having never done anything like that before during this whole time so the the, the tracks for the new true fire course were entirely recorded in everybody's homes for the first time rather than going to a studio to do the backing track so you know that's 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 been a, a amazing to have. It would be a very bleak situation for me without without those guys. So. Well, let's talk a little about. Um, you know, I say that all the time when I'm doing these doggone interviews. Let's talk a little bit about. It's kind of a foregone conclusion, but <laughs> that we're going to talk about something. But um, I was curious when you're in the recording mode, mm. uh, especially in a home situation. You know, when you're playing live. You know, you've got your two rock amps, and maybe you'll use also an ancillary Fender amp of some sort, right? That you'll you'll put together, yeah. and the, yeah. the tone is majestic and huge sounding. Uh, how does that differ? Obviously, when you're in a home situation, maybe you can't turn up to the same volume or all that kind of stuff, or maybe you can. I don't know. But what what's your take on? I that? absolutely can't turn up. I'm in a I'm in a condo uh, surrounded by old people. So, uh, in fact, I tried it once, uh, and uh, immediately it was got, met with an icy cool. Yeah, I got a phone call within ten minutes. You know, I'm like, wow, okay. So, um, I have to say, the the absolute savior for me has been the um, Universal Audio. Op, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I jumped on pretty quickly when this thing this thing happened, um, and um, I don't have a relationship with universal audio so this is all genuine right i paid bought and paid for all this stuff but uh that's been basically a a complete lifesaver so it's uh, i haven't heard a real 100 watt cranked up two rock since this whole thing but it um it allows me to get really close and then i've been experimenting with and this box i bought ages ago is this thing called uh Little Labs uh, Red Eye, and it's a reamper DI. So I'm starting to record a DI at home that, you know, so I can play here and get stuff done with the with the view. Haven't done this bit yet to taking it to the studio and then actually just reamping what I've done through the real rig. You know, the Ox sounds great, but it's not the same. You know, right. so um, so I'm sort of like, how can I? utilize my time recording here but still be able to um actually use the the full real rig at some point so that's that's my latest development there is the hope of reamping through my actual live rig um which would be you know then it's just go to an go for an afternoon to the studio and put all my solos out through the, right. uh, the real rig so we'll see how that works but yeah it's been like uh, necessity is the mother of invention uh, for, for months trying to get it done but i only hear guitar through um through monitors these days at the moment 
you know, in terms of your your live rig, I mean, we've never actually chatted, you know, geeked out on gear together. But I was I was curious, are you are you someone that likes to do the gain through the amp, or do you set it loud and clean and then goose it with pedals, or kind of a combination of the both? I'm a loud and clean person, yeah, right on the edge. You know, I came up playing uh, Super Reverb sure. yeah. for, uh, well, probably the first. It was probably 15 years of just solid. What I just had my rig from, like, the late 90s was, was uh, my 61 Strat and... My 64 Super Reverb, and I had one guitar and one amp and right. one pedal in between, and made my first few records like that. It was that's literally what I had. It was not much, but it was it would do. Yeah, <laughs> it was just the good stuff. So, uh, and that was that was fine for me. You know, I have never been a kind of uh, I'd like I've never had the money to be a collector actually. So I'd rather have the good stuff, and I was lucky to get each of those pieces. You know, right. uh, so then when you come up with playing a Super Reverb on like six. Um, that's that's uh, that edge of breakup thing. So that carried over into to the two rocks when I started using uh, those, and it's always been that pushed with a a pedal, really. Um, not much, but it's like there's a gain staging thing that I do, and I uh, so I use volume control a lot on the guitar right. as well. Sometimes with the pedal on, so it's just kind of pushing everything as you go, you know. So um, it, so it fits together, kind of. Or it's almost like playing just into the amp turned up more, but there's a different right. kind of clarity you get with the clean amp rather than a flat out amp. So, I, um, yeah, and that, that's that's just the way it's been. Not that much stuff, and I've been, you know, I've been around the houses with um, um, adding more pedals and the pedal sure. board grows and stuff. But the last couple of years, I've just got down to just having uh, just my Mad Professor Supreme drive that we did. Okay. And a little slapback delay, and um, and that's really it. You know, keeping a bit of tremolo. Right. But I, as time goes on, I realize all the guys that I still listen to that I go and put the records on every day. That's another thing I've been doing a lot this uh, past time. Actually, to digress for a second, is just listening to records on vinyl and not listening to them in the car or on the plane, or but like sitting down and putting on an album. But that. Yeah. I'm digressing there for a second. But I realize all those guys, all those records, nobody's got loads of crap going on, you know? No. If, if anything at all, you know, like 50, 60% of the guys I listen to are straight into the uh, amp. And then, you know, maybe somebody's got a fuzz pedal or a tube screamer. Or, and so, right. so, so I've been drawn back to that kind of, well, basically, basically just trying to play well. Right. <laughs> you know? I understand. That never ends. Yeah. <laughs> so back in the day, you were pretty much like a, a tube screamer guy. You weren't real. That kind of your main weapon back in the day when you had the the old Strat and the Super Reverb. Uh, it was initially, and then I got a Menatone Red Snapper. So this we're oh. talking maybe around two thousand. It was an early, the early days of boutique, and it was supposed to be more transparent than a right. uh, than a tube screamer. And so that was my first couple of records. Actually, was just was just that that guitar, and a Menatone Red Snapper and a, and a Blackface Super. So um, yeah. very well looked after Blackface Super. You know that's really important with those old amps. They nothing sounds better than them as long as they're in in good condition. You know. So, yes, um, I played Super Reverbs for years on end, and I'd have 
Yeah, to your point. I mean, there was a, I had two, one, and they were both bastardized. You know, they yeah. were they were definitely players' pieces. But I need you know because if one goes down, you're you're in trouble. Well, and every that, now and again, I'd stack them on high and and hear both of them together. But that that was just too loud most of the time. I, mean, I was good with one. Yeah, two um, supers is loud. I mean, I like that around <laughs> there. But and you know, these days I'm on the hundred watt two rocks. But um, there you go. Y- you know, um, that was actually the reason I started or I ended up with my first two rock, probably in about 2005, is because, you know, you can't get a really good Super Reverb everywhere you go and uh, right. doesn't travel well, Vintage Amp. You, you know, it, it was like, is there something that I can get me that kind of vibe that I can throw around everywhere or I can, you know... I, I have a great relationship with Turok and Eli and Mac are uh, a couple of my best friends in the world over there. So they look after me wonderfully. I can fly to Italy and the, the distributor there will have an amp for me. You know, and that makes um, life much better than than sure. dead, dead old silver face twin reverbs and, and JC120s as backline, you know what I mean? Right, because <laughs> one never knows. No man, I've I've had terrible, terrible things. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know. I understand. Yeah, Two Rock makes great stuff. <clears throat> They're yeah, great sounding amps. Yeah, and I so I don't even really look for gear anymore. Some, you know, what I mean, like I, I'm not, um, I'm not on the hunt really. Uh, sure. Happen across things, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. I can use this as well. But I'm not. Um, I'm not a fiddler. I'm not a tweaker, really. You know, and uh, it's, it's a fiddler and a tweaker. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not with the gear, anyway. <laughs> Woo, Lord have mercy. Yeah, I. You know, it's it's an interesting thing with with gear. It's um, you know, it's like sometimes I like using pedals, sometimes I don't. You know, and I've you know, it's it's you know, I have friends of mine who come over and they go downstairs in the basement. And I've just got. Got all these pedals, and sometimes they're in boxes. I've never even played them. You know what I mean? You just end up with this stuff. And then every now and again, you'll take one out and like, what does this one do? Like, that's kind of fun. You use it for a hot minute, and then it goes back into the into the cave of shame. Yeah, I got a shelf over here of pedals that are all wonderful, but I don't use. You know? Yep, I understand. It's a crazy thing. But you know, I had a Tuesday night local gig in in the local blues bar just here just for fun when i was off the road for the last yeah. couple of years with and it's just my my friend uh and manager jay stolman he's a singer and you know we so we call a rhythm section me and jay and just go play like blues and old right. rock and roll um and i have to say that was it's a small club and i'd take my full rig you know so i'm playing 100 watt two rock in a in a, in a bar basically um, and I was like, well, how can you do that, you know? And uh, it was that was really good. I hadn't played those kind of rooms for a long time, if you know what I mean. I've been playing yeah. concerts, so uh, um, so doing bar gigs just for fun if we're home. And uh, it was a really good experience of, like, basically playing in that old-school way that I hadn't. So instead of standing on a pedal for a solo or something, it's like starting out the night, on six or seven on the guitar and then just feeding it a bit more in your solo. And so it was, it's a really great way of learning to play dynamically that I'd almost forgotten over the years when you start playing bigger stages and so you can be loud the whole time, you know? Right. 
Um, so it, that was that was a good thing over the last couple of years. So it really wasn't about the gear at all. It was using the gear that I have in a different in, way. Yeah, in a different way, in circumstances that maybe even 10 years ago, I'd have been like, well, how the hell am I going to get a sound in here? You know, because <laughs> I, I need to be louder. But actually, now I love it like that. So I started bringing that back to my own gigs. So in, and, and then you end up loving the big headroom amps, even on smaller, smaller stages, you know, sure. and get, learning to use them and not being told to turn down. There's a way to do it where your tone is obviously still very present and, and big, but it's, um, it's, it's also pleasant and not fatiguing, even though it's right. so, so that's been, that's been like the, the latest process really of tone is that kind of stuff. Well, I kind of wanted to uh, revisit your digression of a few minutes ago when you're talking about sitting around and listening to some records. And what, oh, yeah. what are the kind of things you've been uh, rediscovering or discovering and listening to as of late? Uh, I mean, a lot of the same stuff as usual. My hobby uh, has become going on eBay and finding old vinyls. So okay. I, I just got my little record player rigged together um, just before all this started. So I didn't have many, you know... Um, so, so it's been that's been the fun thing, and, and uh, really getting it. It sounds great, man. When you get, oh, yeah. I have a hugely expensive rig, but it's a bit like a guitar rig actually, because I got the turntable, and I was like, oh, this isn't quite there, you know. And then, um, so I changed the stylus, and the, so the stylus is as expensive as the turntable. So like now I'm in five hundred bucks now, and I'm like, okay, so it's not crazy, but. So I got it where I wanted it, and everything's dialed in. And then, yeah, I started. I immediately bought the uh, the first uh, ZZ Top records. So that was uh-huh, it. Yes. <laughs> because they always sounded best on vinyl. So they did a box set. So I was like, right, because those are the tones, man. Billy yes. on on the first few records. That Majestic. It's, it's every great tone ever, you know. Right. Um, so it was that, and then buying up all the old blues records, you know. So I think. Uh, Buddy Guy Stone Crazy was one of the first ones I got, um, which is record. I don't know that many people. It's like from 1979, recorded in France, but it's it's out of control. It's all live in the studio. Wonderful sound, and he's just an absolute maniac on it. It's got it's like six tracks. Some of them are like ten minutes long. They're just playing. They're just doing what they do. Right. And this record producer in France just captured it, you know. Awesome. So that and Muddy Waters, uh, Hard Again, and all those, all those ones, all the BB, Albert King, Albert. Co- I just got yesterday. I just got um, Albert Collins trucking with Albert Collins. Ah, yeah. mid sixties with all the cool instrumentals. Don't lose your cool. So I'm just searching around on eBay for for uh, copies of that, and you can get stuff if they're not. You know, super desirable albums. They are to me, but I'm getting stuff for like five or eight dollars. You know, yeah. So that's fantastic. It's, it's great. So it really, I'm listening to music like I did when I started. So that this pause has been kind of uh, inspiring, and, and yeah, again, kind of making the best out of a bad situation. That, that that's something I haven't really had the time or or I'd forgotten to just sit down and actually just listen. Right. And that's how I learned to play. Sure, um, exactly. It's so different these days, obviously, with the True Fire stuff. You know, we didn't have that when, when we were starting right. out, things like that, or just YouTube where there's dozens of people giving lessons for free. Right. I learned to play by hitting – I was a tape generation back then, but 
and rewind on that cassette and listening right. again and just so I know I know all the bass lines, I can air drum all the drum fills on all those records, you know, and right. uh, um, that I think that's there's a, a depth of listening that perhaps gets lost a little bit these days in the way we consume music differently. Right. You know? so, so it's been great to go back to that, and I would highly recommend to anybody. Um, and it's been, you know, I, I I have to just turn off the news and sometimes and just put a record on or just. I can't talk about that with anyone anymore. So I'm just going to fight, seek refuge in music, you know? Right. Well, one of the things that was fun, well, you know, when I'd go out to Colorado and I haven't been going out there, obviously, because of the current mm -hmm. pestilence, but um, there was a record store down the street from where Wild was was at. And they had just really great stuff. The guy, it was a kind of a resale shop that had all kinds of cool books and artifacts. And the guy had a good eye for stuff and he had great records. And so I ended up just buying them like a, like the old school phonographs, you know, you'd have, and actually it said like, you know, St. Rita's or whatever was kind yeah. of written in magic marker on the side. And so when I would come out, um, I stashed that record player out there and I would just, you know, at the end of the day, shooting videos, I'd just grab a bunch of my records that I had kind of stocked up out there and I'd just go back, I had this handy dandy little carrier, you know, some kind of freakish that somebody probably had from the 60s, you know, and they were going over to party at their friend's house. They had the little cheesy carrying case, you know, for their records. And I'll tell you what, there, to your point, there's nothing like just sitting down and digesting music in the vinyl format. It, there's just something, I mean, even on that cheesy little device, mm -hmm. you, you just, plus the programming, you know, you can digest music in a different way instead of like, you know, a lot of times you get a CD and there's, you know, 12, 15 tracks, you know, unless there's, there's times you, you know, I wasn't even aware of the, <laughs> of the latter parts of the records, well, you know, and a lot of times you never get that far. So yeah, those you know, unless you have records like done shuffle or something minutes. like that. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's been, I, I totally agree with the, the vinyl situation, but you know, one of the other things just in, from just listening to vinyl, I still want to, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things of all time is just playing along with records. It's just still one of the funnest things. Like, you know, be the end of the day and, you know, people are watching shows I don't want to watch in here, or my wife goes up to bed, and I'll just sit down, and then I'll be like, oh, you know, I haven't seen this thing in a while. I think I'll revisit this tune or whatever, and I'll just sit and listen to it and and play along, and you just get lost in it. It's like, you know, it's like you never get bored. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's yeah, these are a lot of these I'm buying records again that I've been listening to for 30 years, and, and I'm I'm not bored of them. And that's, that is how, it, what you just said, that's how I learned to play is not so much learning things note for note, but right. like playing along with the record and exactly. trading with something that, you know, BB plays a line, you kind of play it back. That's, that's how I learned to play. So yeah, it's been, been, it's almost like the break of this whole thing is like a reset and we'll start again, you know, like chapter two of like playing something. It's, it, it's, um, Oh, that's how I've had to make it feel, you know, of like, right. you know, when I was 13, I didn't have a lot of gigs, but we were trying to get them and we do one now and again. Um, but I so desperately wanted to gig that 
that was enough. The listening and the jamming along was enough to hold me over till the next gig. So it's kind of, I'm doing that again now, you know? Right. There's no replacement for actually playing live, you know? Right. Um, and I, man, I miss having uh, road chops, you know, because there's no amount of noodling even right. all the way. There's, yeah, under there's, battle it, conditions, it's a whole different it, ball it, of wax. It really is. I, I know just the true fire a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, Man, I feel so rusty, you know, even though there's a guitar in reach all the time. But it, and, right. and then, you know, doing two days of playing all day there, I was like, I haven't had calluses this soft in a while. I mean, even though I'm picking one up every day, it, it's something about, yeah, the, the, the battle format, yes. exactly. of, of the intensity of it that, um, you know, I, I haven't gone down a gauge in strings, but I've been thinking about it because it seems like as time goes on it's like oh man because you have no adrenaline playing it even right. recording into the 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 um home the the system at home kind of tracks the the adrenaline is not the same so right. um, um you have to find ways around all of that but just go back to the vinyl for the second i have this uh non-scientific theory that it's it sounds so good it's the dynamic range on it is just completely different than listening on any other format. I don't know. I haven't had a tape machine, but I still think it would be different than the tape because it's actually carved into space the, in the yeah. grooves. The music is represented in physical three dimension, right? Right. Rather than zeros and ones. Right. And so it has this um, reality to it when you listen to it, because it, it's, it's there. It's carved uh, forever into those grooves. So that's how I hear it, man, is with so much I'm, I'm actual you. life, you know? I remember when <clears throat> my folks had a – my dad, when he was going through somewhat of a midlife crisis in the late 70s, he bought this, like, really tricked-out Bang & Olufsen stereo with a really right, good right. turntable and the whole nine yards. And at some point, I got the stereo. My parents were moving. They're like, we don't listen to this thing anymore. You can take it. And that was probably in a period where, you know, my kids were really young. And, and I had, um, I don't even think I had a proper turntable hooked up. I, was, I had gone to CDs at that point. But I had all my records still. Mm -hmm. And I remember setting up that stereo and putting on the record. And, and it was just such a visceral reaction to listening to me. I almost got a little weepy. I was like, oh, my God, there it is. You yeah. know, and I didn't know what it was, what it was missing until I heard it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I used to make, you know, years ago, I was, you know, playing this 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 Fender amp, which was um, they had approached me about doing this thing uh, using the Cyber Twin amp. And I had a lot of fun playing the damn thing. There was a bunch of cool things that you could do on it. And when you're playing it just as it is, it was great. I recorded some way that sounded great. And then one day I set it up next to a super reverb <laughs> and, I, and I plugged it in. I was like, yeah, that's, but that's just not the same thing. You know what I mean? That's not that it's horrible or anything, but it's just, it's different. So it's not the same thing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just a whole different ball of wax. So, um, and of course, you know, you, you mentioned that to, um, Although, you know, it's interesting, though. I, I'm going to not be like, you know, the old man of kids today. I think kids actually get it. You know, the younger people, when they listen to vinyl, like, there's something going on here. You know, obviously not to the point where, you know, people are buying millions of records again. But they're certainly I think they're buying more than vinyl than CDs these days. I think. Yeah, I think you're and, correct. And you know what? When we had gigs at the merch table, the vinyl was selling better than CDs in the last right. few years. That's what... 
um, people were taking home with them. You know, I mean, who has a CD player really these days? Not many exactly. people. Not even in modern cars, right? So. Well, and it's, it's you can't even buy a laptop anymore with a with a doggone disc drive. You know, right, right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, the the vinyl thing is. I was going to say it's it's funny. People would buy vinyl and then they buy these hats. That was one, <laughs> one of the stupidest things. Well, one of the coolest things was like, people, hey, where, where do you get those hats? And you know, when you're on the road, it's like whatever's going to sell merch wise, you got to take advantage of. And I, all of a sudden, I had the gal who was making these hats for me make a bunch, and you know, people people wanted to set up with the hats, and I'm like, you know what? Let the good time. So I'll have some vinyl and some and a hat. And I'm like, okay, whatever it That's takes. Excellent so I did. <laughs> A person's got to do what they got to do. Am I right? Hey, we all do, man. Yeah. <laughs> we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So let's talk about back in England. You're growing up, and you, from what I understand, it's like your your dad had blues records, right? Is that how basically you got in? But I, I'm curious because you know, being from the U.S. of Ah here, we all not we all, but a lot of people, such as myself, I wasn't one of the cool kids that listened to Muddy Waters, right, and, and Howlin' Wolf. And Robert John, I didn't know about any of those cats until I had listened to Cream and Hendrix and started reading the the record things. I'm talking about BB King and Albert King, and then I went back, right, and learned. And then, but you know, but primarily it was like Cream era Clapton. It was uh, you know, and then it, it was kind of you know the Yardbirds track. You know what I mean? It was Clapton, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, and one thing, and then it was. Uh, Eric Clapton, Peter Green, and Mick Taylor in the other one. And that, that was like, you know, the guys. And then from from there, you went back and listened to all the stuff and connected the dots and and did all that kind of stuff. But I'm just curious, growing up in England, yes, what was what was that like in comparison? It was like, no, I, these English guys aren't the thing. It's the it's the American guys that are or was there reverence for that, regardless of the fact that you're over there you know i was I mean? kind of getting both at the same time actually because this so this is the late 80s when i started coming online with this stuff you know um but my dad's records he was buying you know in the late 60s as, as a teenager himself the generation of, he was one of those guys in the same way that clapton and keith richards were discovering the real american blues artists in the 60s at the time he was hip to hip to that as well you know europe was exposed to the black american artists much sooner than the u.s was really right and they used to go over there and tour uh you know there's that whole folk festival of the blues dvd series that came out all those tours all in europe you know so my dad was aware of those guys so he was buying those records so he wasn't buying john mel and the blues breakers he was buying freddie king you know so uh so he had all, all that stuff. He saw Freddie King and Howling Wolf on a double bill in Manchester, England, you know, in the 70s, like that kind of stuff. So, right. so he would always listen to it um, at, at, uh, at home and he had his little study office and uh, he'd listen on headphones, you know. And I also, I always wondered what he was listening to, even from being very young. Um, and then, of course, we'd hear some of it. Um, and my 
grandfather as well, his dad would listen on headphones. He had a little cassette deck. And he'd listen to like uh, Count Basie and stuff like that. Okay. So, so they they were always doing that. So it was probably like a sort of fascination of that they were immersed in this stuff with their big headphones on, just listening to music. And my dad had reel to reel as well. Um, in fact, he's still got all the stuff. I need to get reel to reel and listen to what I, whatever he's got on there. Right. Um, but gradually, I started becoming more and more familiar with it. So I can't remember a time that I didn't know the names BB King or Muddy Waters or, and you know, I just. Right. Um, and then he relocated to the U.S. when I was eleven, and uh, I think I'd already maybe I think I had. It's you know it's hard to know the timeline, but he had he taped um, off the TV this BB uh, King some about three or four tracks from a BB King concert recorded in Newcastle in the UK. And it was shown on TV and on his first VCR, you know, the top loader with the, the right. big old thing, we managed to tape it off TV and he left me that video. So I just started being obsessed with these four tracks and just watching it every day going, how, how is he doing that? You know, what is he, what is he, uh, what's going on there? And then I got a little, well, I had a nylon string acoustic already, you know, but I, and I'd, been shown the the cowboy chords but that's all i knew but um then so then i got a bass because i thought well i can never be bb king but i uh I, maybe i could play bass in his band because he had this bass player russell jackson who uh is still out and about there and i was blown away by him as well so well maybe i could play bass for bb king uh, so i'm like at this point by this point i'm like 12 years old you know <laughs> um but i i decided i still had to somehow be bb you know so it just sort of went from there, and then, so then I go stay in the in California with him in the summers, and every year I would tape more of his vinyls onto cassette, take them back, and learn them for the rest of the year. Because there were again, there was unless you knew someone with the records, and I was in the countryside, but then I'd moved out of Manchester. I was in, so there was no record store for twenty miles or something, you know, and right, so, and I'm thirteen, you know, so. Um, so I'd take, take that stuff, at, buy a stack of, you know, C90s and, uh, yeah. take them home for a year and learn it. And so that's, that's, yeah, that's what I did. But immediately I started a band, you see, this is, this is the, the thing. Um, and, and I've realized how important that was. I wasn't playing a backing tracks. I wasn't in my bedroom by myself. I was playing in my bedroom by myself, but every opportunity we got, it, I, so it was like 1990, and so I, I went back to school in September that year after being in the U.S. for the summer, and uh, I said to some friends, all right, I'm starting a band. I'm playing guitar, you know, because I'm already doing a bit of that. And uh, so, so one friend is like, yeah, I'll play drums. Another guy's like, I'll play bass. We spend every waking minute learning together, getting in the room, and I had a really cool music teacher who he was a classical guy, you know, and and – he he didn't necessarily understand what we were doing, but he knew we were pretty good and passionate about it. So he he let he would let us stay after school in the music department and just play and play all night and let us go in there on weekends unaccompanied. I mean, they wouldn't even be allowed to do that now, but he'd give us the key to the school music department where there was a drum kit. I did my first gig on the school guitar before I had an electric guitar myself. I was working, uh, you know, working out on my little nylon string at home, three-quarter size nylon string, and then borrowed the school guitar to do my first gig. So it, 
I realized how important that was, that it was all in the context of making music with other people. And so it's always been that way. So, and we were the only band in town. And, you know, it's not like blues was popular with everybody else. We just, it was like the four or five of us that happened to be into this stuff in, in a little village. And, um, so yeah, we, we were playing it, man. It was all at the same time though. I was on my dad's records. Um, and then, you know, this is 89, 90. So I'm hearing Stevie Ray as well, Robert Cray and, uh, all that stuff right. at the same time. And of, and of course you immediately know who Clapton is and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and you know, my mum's stuff was more sixties British stuff that she liked. She was a big uh, fan of a band called Eamon Corner, which was, uh, Andy Fairhead the low. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah that was his, he was a huge, yeah. I mean, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, but he was a huge pop star in the sixties with this band, Eamon Corner. So that was my mum's idol. So I actually got him to sign her original seven inch single. We did a concert together a few years ago, both playing at this charity event. So I said, uh, you know, if you don't mind, uh, Andy, could you sign this for my mom? So she's got it framed, you know, like <laughs> four, 45 years after she bought it or something, you know. So, Fantastic. That was really cool. But um, so, yeah, it was it was all that stuff, you know, at the same time. If Late 80s and early 90s, that sort of second blues boom, um, I feel lucky to have caught some of that. It might have been different without those guys, without Stevie and... Right. and uh, those people at the T-Birds, you know. Right. Um, um, would There's so many of us of, I mean, there's a lot of guitarists born the same year as me, uh, 77, there's loads of guys, or the, the late 70s were all, that we all do something similar, you know, Josh and Kirk, mm-hmm. and Kenny Wayne Shepard, Joe Bonamassa, John Mayer, everybody's born like within a couple of years of each other. And I think it's because everybody got, that second wave of blues and you know stevie and then either was already into the 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 older stuff or got led to it but there's definitely a generational thing there something happened you know around that time so um yeah we've you know we've always been kind of into the blues in the uk i guess people always ask but you know why would a brit want to play blues and it's like in case you haven't noticed we've been (laughs) we've been selling it to you guys for 50 years man selling it back right exactly Exactly correct. Well, what's interesting to me, and you know, when I uh, I started off, I always was curious as to where stuff came from. You know what I mean? I would hear like Hendrix do a little thing, and like, well, where's that from? Oh, that's 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 a uh, that's an Albert Kingism there, or no, that's a Hubert Sumlin. You know, I always had to trace things back. and I continue to do that. Every time I hear someone, something's unique, I'm like, okay, well, this, this stuff, I mean, there are some people where stuff just came came out. I mean, you listen to an Alan Holsworth and you're like, well, that's kind of his thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But for the most part, you can you can trace back, okay, well, they listen to this and this and this, especially in, in the blues realm and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's astounded me more than anything else uh, over the years is, is that I think so many people 
listen to ladder BB King and they just see him in the, you know, kind of in the BB box doing his and then hitting the octave and singing great and leading yeah. the band. But they don't realize that pretty much all of the coolest shit that was done by all of the major progenerators of the blues progenerators. I don't even know what that word is, but it is no, one. That sounds good. Go with it. <laughs> is, is it comes from BB. I mean, I mean, even- I say this virtually every interview, mate, I am glad to hear you saying that. And I just did one of the two fire calls that I just shot a couple of weeks ago is about my heroes. And it all starts with BB King, like the pre and post BB King, as far as I'm concerned. And he's like, the the root of the tree of pretty much everything that's happened is in a way bb invented rock guitar if you right. know what's become that lineage is from bb so of course t-bone was his influence charlie christian was right. his influence a little bit of django in there Django, yeah and uh, lonnie johnson yeah but really he comes along and the guitar sings is yep. what happens vibrato huge bends you know like this singing uh exciting sound and that's it now we all stand on his shoulders pretty you know and and even somebody that's you could even probably at some point you know holdsworth is is you can trace it all the way back you know right people i mean uh like you know i love john schofield and i if you hear him straight blues he's a wonderful blues player because that's what he came up with and it, it, i say quite often that in some ways he's more in the tradition of the great blues guitarists than, right. than anything I would agree. else with that i'm a huge schofield fan so yeah absolutely. but he's got a sound like all those guys and this is what i sort of miss a little bit about the world out there or well it's just different now because there's so many players you know but back back then they all have a sound that's com- completely, I mean, Albert Collins and B.B. King. You couldn't right. find two more people that can really, that really are the blues. And yet there's almost well, no. Albert King. You know, Albert King yeah. would be the, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's almost no similarity between, they're so individualistic, their right. style, you know, Albert Collins to B.B. King, and yet they're both the blues, you know? Right. Exactly. It's, so it's, uh, and all of those guys, Albert King, um, Freddie, you know, Buddy, yeah. just on and on. And, of course, we – it's so easy for us to now just pick out little bits of their playing for ourselves and go – but, you know, they came up with it. That's they a did. whole different thing. Yes, sir. Than learning a bunch of licks because there were no licks for BB to learn, if you know what I mean. He, he right. came up with the licks so that we all still play. So. Absolutely. I mean, what was funny to me is that, you know, you – you listen to some of the older stuff and then you'd hear like, well, that's, that's a lick that Johnny winter does that, that you think yeah. is all kind of blues shreddy. And you realize that BB had done it, you know, had all of the, I mean, a lot of the Claptonisms, obviously mm-hmm. certainly Peter green. I mean, all of the guys, but I mean, there, there were so many things that people, unless they'd kind of searched a little bit would have no idea that BB actually did all that stuff first. And, yeah. And- he gets, I think, He's strangely underrated for his playing in some ways that all that talk of, you know, oh, he could do so much with one note. Right. Well, yeah, but he could also do um, a whole bunch with a lot of notes and some stuff. In fact, a couple of months back, or I was on uh, 
Facebook for a second there. And, on the Facebook. Yeah, I don't. I've been giving it all a bit of a wide berth lately. That all that stuff, you know. Right. Um, but uh, and the discussion came up, and I posted a couple of clips actually of, from a documentary that I have of BB. For is from 1989, and he's okay. playing at his homecoming in Indianola, Mississippi, which he did every year. He would do a concert there in the summer. So it's super loose gig that the, this footage is from. He is destroying these kind of Charlie Christian Django right. lines, but with this nasty ass BB Lab series, you know. Right. So this cr- cranking Lab series, Lucille. But these lines, you're like, this is. Nobody knows he could play that kind of stuff, you know, because he didn't most of the time. It's didn't funny like- you should say that because I, I, yeah, I'm sure like you had had seen BB King more times than I can remember. Mm-hmm. But I remember one particular time. Um, I think he was at the Summerfest grounds in in Milwaukee, and um, and I remember his voice was kind of hoarse, right. and so he played more than he sang. And every time I'd seen him prior to that, you know, he was doing his usual thing and he would play great and it was all well and good. But because his voice wasn't in top form, he played more. And it was the same thing as you talked about. He definitely, mm-hmm. it's like, oh no, he didn't forget any of that. No, no. <laughs> in fact, the 80s is my favorite period of BB's playing because it's like, you know, he's old enough to have been doing it for 40 years, probably by that point, you know, uh, actually playing live but you know he's still uh as dexterous as he ever was you know so he's he's in his early 60s on a lot of this stuff you know right. just just killing it it's yeah i mean and and th- that's the thing also people don't realize um how much i took from that they presume it's from more modern influences so um you know a lot of what people think is say from Robin Ford, which not to suggest that Robin hasn't been a, a massive influence, you know, but people presume that some of the things I'm doing came from Robin, but actually they're BB things. Sure. You know? Because I first heard the diminished from BB, you know, not, sure. not the half whole, but the diminished arpeggio right. playing is littered with that, you know? So people's frame of reference is, is different because they don't know BB plays that stuff. So it's like, oh, you do that Robin Ford stuff. Well, some of it, sure, yeah. But uh, actually, I, it's, I got almost everything from BB in the first place, you know, because I, it's, yeah, I can't, I could talk about him all day. I mean, he's it, he's it. Yeah, so. I, I still listen to him all the time. Yep. And, actually, uh, Blues it, is King, I, that record I had on there. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. You know, I I always had, you know, Live at the Regal and yep. Live at Cook County Jail. And, and then someone on, one of the things that Facebook is uh, is good for is I saw Duke Robillard posted some. One of my favorite B.B. King records is Blues is King. Mm-hmm. It's a live record. I'm like, what? And and I got, and it's been one of my favorite ever since. It's just magnificent. The tone is spectacular. And there's one track where he's got the reverb really cranking. Right. And it's it's like well if that isn't where Peter Green got everything exactly. I don't exactly there's one track in particular I can't think of which one it is off the top of my head I just when it was on I was like that's that's Peter Green's entire style is this song <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. you know and, and you know and I love Peter Green I'm a big fan it was it was interesting if we segue into that for a hot second but it was just 
you know, I was a big fan of Peter Green's, but when I was first listening to all this stuff, I remember um, somehow one of my older siblings had a record called The History of British Blues. It was a double record set. And there was some stuff on there that wasn't on, you know, the Blues Breakers records. Right. Um, and Peter had that snotty, you know, Clapton-esque tone, right? But then there was a thing where he would just play clean, and, and there was a track that he did with Rod Stewart singing. It was a, uh, Stone Crazy with uh, Inzy Dunbar and Jack Bruce. And it's a really cool track, and it's very clean, neck pickup on a Lester, cool-sounding thing. But then I remember back in the day, I didn't like the early Fleetwood Mac stuff as much because it wasn't as hard-edged as cream right. or, you know, and all that other kind of stuff. So I was like, yeah, I like it. But, you know, kind of the the sound of a cleaner but just slightly overdriven Les Paul with a lot of reverb on it for whatever I, I wasn't into. But then later on, it's like, I just love, I love it to bits. And I love the, and, and what I really think is that, that Danny Kerwin doesn't get anywhere near the kudos that he deserves because he had that quirky vibrato and his songwriting was great. I don't know how big of a Fleetwood Mac fan you are, but I'm- You know I, what? I love listening to that stuff. I have virtually zero idea about it at all. I have none of that. I've never really, I, I should listen to it. I haven't done that. You so know what, it, it's I fun. I mean, I know Peter Green from like a couple of the, the famous songs, Need Your Love So Bad, which incidentally is a B.B. King song, really. Exactly, exactly <laughs> correct. But, uh, but well, check uh, out uh, the record Then Play On. It's yeah, okay. it's it's cool. And and then there's the uh, there's a couple of live things. The live from Boston is great. Uh, but Danny Kerwin had this thing, and he wrote these songs that were. I mean, these these guys were obviously. You know, you hear all the mythology that they went to some party and you know took some mm -hmm. strange acid with demon worshippers and were never the same since, yeah. or whatever the case may be. I don't know what the deal was, but there's some. It's an interesting thing where they're coming from because they're neither of them are into any of the kind of. Uh, I mean, Danny or, or Peter, when they're playing, it, it, there's none of that traditional kind of testosterone. Right. You know, I'm gonna I'm <laughs> I'm gonna give your ear what for type of a thing. It's 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 a whole different thing. So it's uh, it's worth giving it a revisit. Yeah, I should I should check. There's a lot of stuff I need to look into more. On that, so some of it for me, I'll be honest, the reason I was never a huge British blues fan wasn't that the guitar playing wasn't wonderful. It was that I thought the rhythm sections were a bit I, I hear you. swinging. And once you're Eddie listening to BB live at the Regal with the shuffles like that and stuff, right? It always the British stuff always sounded a bit lumpy to me. I hear you. <laughs> but I can, you know, I should put that aside and actually just listen to it from the perspective of it being uh an entire thing you know rather right exactly i hear you the, the the drummer can't shuffle you know <laughs> right which is a problem although yeah. Fleetwood, he's got a pretty damn good shuffle as far as shuffle yeah. i don't mean anyone specifically is i hear you i hear you feels are just different from where i was already where i'd already found myself you know right i totally get it yeah as uh, breakers too you know uh, really uh i don't have I've listened to it, but I don't put that record on, you know. I'm an early ZZ guy, so to, to me, like, they're, they're like that, except right. Frank's got that Texas shuffle, man. You know, so. Right. <laughs> exactly. And the tones are... Oh, vicious. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with, with the ZZ Top stuff, because I love the first records as well, but one of my favorite 
records of theirs for just a buffet of guitar goodness is Tejas. I just yeah. love that record. They're all really cool in their own way. All those. Uh, Diguelo is. Yeah, oh, Diguelo. That's Make got it. just ridiculous guitar and lots of strat, it sounds like. Yes. Now, exactly. Clean Billy. Um, but and then, you know what? I, I love them. I love them all most. most I, I'll put on Eliminator and go, you know what? This is a damn good time, this record. That's yes. Like to me. Um, it and, was funny because when that first record, when that record first came out, I was so disappointed because, you know, sure. I, yeah. I had just seen them on the, um, on the El Loco tour, which I love that record. They were so great live. And all of a sudden, this record came like, what the hell? And it took me about a month. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, it was, you know, I was aware of that before the other stuff, I guess, because of the 80s. Um, but my dad had some ZZ stuff as well, you see. So uh, Ah, there you go. Yeah, that was kind of, he topped out at like ZZ, Stevie Ray, and... Uh, and Robert Cray, I guess, you know, like that's where he uh, ends off in terms of the history of guitar. And so he didn't know about people like Robin or John Schofield as much. Or stuff like that. Yes. So that was that was my own later discovery. Uh, uh, jazz, I think they call it, don't they? So, yes. The jazz musics. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I, I mean, when you mentioned Robin earlier, um, you know, having... I first knew about, I remember I, when I was in high school, so I went to high school from 80 to, yeah, I graduated in 1984, so, and I was, for whatever reason, into this blues stuff. No one my age was was into any of that stuff. I mean, it was, it was you know, by all rights, I should have been a full-fledged either Metalloid or Depeche Mode kind of, you know, new waiver of some sort, but I... I had my older siblings' record collection. I was the youngest of seven, so I was I, I and I started digging into the blue stuff big time. So I played a tally, and I just started doing the chicken picking thing a little bit. And I remember I went to this jazz camp. Um, my high school jazz director is like, "Hey," and gave me this little scholarship to go to this jazz camp for the summer for a couple of weeks. And I went up there, and the guy, you know, traditionally in the states, as far as you know, experience of myself, and I think a lot of others is that in jazz um, pedagogy, if you will, usually it's very dismissive of anyone who bends a string whatsoever. And they consider wow. any, anything <laughs> yeah. anything from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kiss to uh, Zeppelin to Devo, it's all the same. You know what I mean? There's, there's no differentiation. It's, it's just all that rock shit, right? right. And um, so I go to this, this camp, and the guitar instructor up there was... Um, Totally cool, very open-minded. He saw, you know, he listened to what I was doing. And so he's like, man, that's, I, I like the blue stuff you're doing. I like this other, he goes, if you wanted to just spice it up a little bit with, you know, and add and incorporate some jazz elements, you should check out these two guys. And he played me Larry Carlton and he played me Robin Ford. And that's the first time I heard those guys. And um, and that was before Robin had any solo records out. So I remember right. I got the Tom Scott records um, and then I got the Larry Carlton solo records. And and kind of went from there, and and then over the, over the years, it's interesting because I've gotten to know. I'm sure as you have as well, gotten to know Robin a bit, mm -hmm. and um, and play with them a bit, and so on and so forth. And and as much as I went to school for jazz, to, to me, I, and I never, you know, aped a style per se in terms of you know sound or licks per se or whatever the case, whatever you kind of want to say, but. I told him, I go, you know, I've probably learned more from you in terms of 
how to play over changes in a way that's more oh. of a blues guy thing than anybody else. Well, I think that's where he inserts himself into the history of blues guitar, really. And yeah. and for so many of us, yeah. I mean, he was he was the second epiphany, if you like, as a teenager for me, because I yeah, I'm I'm playing old blues stuff. The band that we have, I'm doing Cream and Hendrix and yeah. Muddy and Howlin' Wolf, you know, a big mashup of that. Yep. Uh, and that's our world, and we're quite happy with that, you know. And course, I don't know anybody that's into jazz or even much um, uh, beyond what we know, you know. And there's no way to find out back then. There's no YouTube or there's no – unless you know somebody. So I'm in a record store uh, in Swindon, the nearest large town where I was – growing up at that point go in hmv going through the racks and i saw the first blue line record yeah. with three of them sat on the cover so this is whenever that was 91 so there's maybe 92 so i've been playing a couple of years so i'm like 15 years old something and uh i don't know why i was like okay you know used to just buy a record and there was no listening station in our record story this you just kind of either you had to know you wanted the record or hit and hope you know right so I, bought, I bought the cd Took it home and I was like, okay, what's going on here? Because this feels like the music that I already am into, but he has other stuff going. Like, right. what's this other stuff? And it really right. sounded like that because if you're just not exposed to it, and as I say, jazz, obviously I knew of jazz, and I, but it was more big band swinging stuff that I'd been exposed to, you know? And, uh, so yeah, but Robin's got this fat tone and uh, right. this, but all these other notes. And so something like "You Cut Me to the Bone," the song on that record comes on with change. And what are those changes? Because you know you're not finding those. It's a shuffle, but you're not finding those changes on a Stevie Ray album, you know, right. or, or a BB King album. So I'm like, okay, I got what's going on. I think I read a magazine article then, guitar player or something. He an interview with him. And uh, next thing you know, they're playing on the tour. It's probably like 93. Blue Line is a trio. Well, that was a huge game changer. And with Robin, it's it's not so much like just his guitar playing. It was his approach to the music in general that's been right. such an influence on my music. Right? You know, it's more much more than a guitar thing for, right. for me. So I went and saw the Blue Line at the Mean Fiddler in Halston in London, me and my friends from the band we all traveled down there and uh of course i was expecting to see an incredible guitarist but actually it was your buddies roscoe and tom that yes. was the biggest takeaway for me uh in terms of the experience that's burned into my mind as a 15 or 16 year old kid i'd never seen a rhythm section like that before i'd never seen guys play their asses off for the whole gig i'd seen Clapton at the Albert Hall with Steve Ferroni on drums, who's sure. wonderful, but it's a backing band. Right. I've seen B.B. King with Caleb Emphery, one of the great blues drummers of all time, but he's backing up B.B. But this was like, for me, would have been the equivalent of seeing Cream or something to my teenage mind. And so the, obviously Robin was great, um, but the real takeaway is I want a band like that. You right. know? So... Then, you know, as the years go on, uh, Johnny Henderson, my uh, longtime organ player from the UK, who, you know, um, I, I got to know Johnny. He 
grew, we grew up in the same town and went to the same high school. And um, it was his older brother, James, who was a guitar player that we were friends at school and I met Johnny, you know. So it, it, our, this, our trio, the original organ trio that I had, and that's the, the new record that we're working on is that band again with Evan Jenkins on drums and Johnny on organ and organ bass. Um, was really like, hey, I wonder if we could do like an organ trio that's kind of like the way the blue line plays. Do you know, you know, the, with, with that, we, we play blues, but we play it like jazz players sort of uh, thing. So, yeah, it was the, and that's the Robin stuff I love is those three blue line records. I, right. I, I have more casual experience of the rest of it, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm really happy that that's my Robin, if you know what sure. I mean. So, um, and uh yeah i've I've got to know him we had we talked about he wanted to produce a record at one point um a couple of years ago we were chatting about that which fell apart um due to uh the the industry let's the the machinations of the music industry yes so i'd like to do so i want to get him actually one day and have him play blues with you know with me rather than uh i mean just like have him play some straight up blues because we've we've done that a couple of times when I've sat in you know just played like a straight blues and he's an incredible straight blues guitarist right oh, obviously his own music of more recent times has been much more songwriter based and that's what he was interested in doing with me at the time we were talking about it but I want a game just on that tally just playing some shuffles and stuff so yes one made one day you know so i understand but it was the band as well so next time you speak to those fellas thank them for me you know <laughs> i will i talk I talk to those fellas pretty often we it's, it's, it's always the, the humor level is quite high i'm sure i'm sure which is that amazing. was roscoe with you uh what you mentioned very briefly earlier when we met uh, for the first time at the Paradiso in Amsterdam, wasn't it? That's correct. That would yes. be about, I'm going to say 2006-ish. I think that uh, is about correct. It was yeah. my first studio record had been out, and that was like the beginning of me touring internationally yeah, you, with you my own. Great. We went upstairs and saw you guys, because we were opening up for Joe uh, Joe Bonamassa, and you guys were playing and. We were in the upstairs room afterwards, so you, exactly. yeah, you were you then Joe, and then us upstairs in the in the second room, um, yeah. And then we hung out a little bit. Everybody's we, we, come a different long way since those days. Yes, and then we uh, we I think didn't I, I did a clinic somewhere and you came out. I, I don't know. I can't remember if Roscoe was. I think he was with. He me. was. He was. Okay. It was um, in Guildford. Because that was, we went for a, a Indian food afterwards. I An remember Indian feast. Yeah, and uh, because it was Anderton's music, that was, that was the first time I met Lee Anderton. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was me and Simon, Simon Law, my uh, long time buddy and associate of guitar building. Uh, of which you've told me some humorous stories about some of his other touring experiences, which we can't share right now. Yeah, the- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there were some, some good old days on those uh, early uh, or mid-noughties uh, early tours, you know. The whole yes. world was ahead of us back then. <laughs> well, I, I'm interested to, to know 
why you left the UK. And I mean, I can, I understand obviously that, you know, when you're in the States, you got, it's a much bigger place to gig around and so on and so forth. Um, but you ended up in Florida, just kind of curious as to how that all transpired. It was all part of my master plan for world domination. No, I mean, (laughs) maybe I should try and have one of those. Um, I, I've been coming to the U S every year, basically, uh, since 1988 or 89 when my dad moved over. So I've always been here a bit, you know, and then, um, started touring here in 2010 the only reason it took till then uh is because you can't get a visa unless you have a certain level of recognition as a artist in your field you know it's all dependent on um let's just say i've been to like over 30 countries in the world and this is by far the hardest one to be able to work in and the the path to legally working here, which is the only way I've ever done it, of course, is um, extremely difficult and extremely uh, extremely long road to, to be able to do that. Um, often, depending on how much money you can spend to do that, uh, is basically, as with so many other things in this um, wonderful country, uh, it helps to have plenty of money. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. So basically, the only way you can work here as an artist is to engage lawyers and petition to prove that you're a, a, um, a unique specimen in the uh, in your field. And so my official status in the U.S., I'm still on an artist visa, uh, three-year visas at a time. You have to renew them every three years. It costs thousands and thousands of dollars and oh, lots of lawyers. And, um, you, you know, you have to prove your worth. And um, so my, my official status is actually... Straight up, I'm an alien of extraordinary ability. It's an O one visa. What, is that on your business card? It yeah, should. it should be actually. But that, <laughs> and, it, the alien of extraordinary ability visa. So, but I have to prove that I have some kind of extraordinary ability that that nobody else here can be Matt Schofield. So, so it, there was a lot of that. So, start finally got that status, uh, 2010. So started touring. We did crazy, crazy ass tours on, for the first couple of years. I mean, in a van, six weeks driving. You know, man, uh, Chicago to. We did one one gig in Chicago, then left, went to Henderson, Kentucky, did another gig, and then ended up in um, East Texas the next night. Oh, you know, all in one straight shot. You know, back in the van after the gig. I've been there and done it, got the T-shirts on those, don't need to do them again, you know, but uh, right. we did it. And um, but at the time, uh, my previous relationship, uh, she was from uh, Toronto. So I would, would go back there most of the time in between touring in the U.S., you know. And then when that um, came to an end, I'd been playing with uh, – uh, couple of fantastic young musicians out of Miami, Aaron Glukoff and Rodrigo Zambrano. Uh, and so I, but they'd been touring with me, you know, in 2014. So I, you know, I had a change of situation in, in Toronto. It was December and you know what Toronto's like in oh. December. You know what it's like where you are. Yes. And so, you know, had a lot of friends in, um, in uh, Miami. So I'm like, I guess I'm going to go to Miami. I got to get out of here. So, uh, so I made a, a little leap, not with any huge plan, except I'd been increasingly there playing 
you know, because of the band that I was with and the, and the friends I'd been getting to know. And uh, so it seems like a good place to go for the winter. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd never been warm in December ever before. It's not like it's balmy and tropical in the UK either, you know. Right. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I was down, went down there and um, kind of here we are now. In some degrees, I ended up moving out of the madness of Miami to Jupiter. Um, I met my manager, Jay, um, and uh, he's been great at things much beyond music, just in, in life in general. So after many years of, you know, um, driving around in vans and being on planes and hotel rooms and crashing here and crashing there, he helped me be able to get, you know, a place of my own that I own and things like that, you know, that um, blues guitarists don't always think about. Do you know, you know what I mean? Sure. When you've just been driving around out there and so it's like he, he helped me uh, get some roots down because of an opportunity that presented itself so i'm still here and uh, you know what it's crazy florida but i'm in jupiter's kind of a little bit away from some of the madness it's beautiful and um you know we're not going to be going anywhere for a while yet by the looks of things so i have uh, space without lots of people i can go for a walk or a ride or go to the condo pool and safely be enjoying where I am. You know, yes, I, I like it. Uh, it's a wonderful place when you on tour half the month and you're going somewhere in the world. It's one not a lovely place to come back to because uh, it's always nice, apart from hurricane season. But, you know. Right, exactly. But, you know, we get all the bad weather in like one week and then it's fine the rest of and the And then week. it's beautiful again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, so that's, that's we never know what we'll get here. It's like one, you know, yesterday it was in the uh, the seventies, and t this morning we went for a walk. It was thirty degrees. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I know all about it, man. Many many Christmases in Toronto uh, over the years, and I've, I decided I've shoveled my last driveway. So. Yeah, it's what more, somebody said, oh, you're going to miss the seasons, and somebody said, yeah, you don't have to shovel sunshine. I thought that's uh, yeah. that's pretty good. <laughs> You know, and it's it is something. I mean, I just never lived anywhere like like this. So I, I mean, obviously not to get too much into how things are going, but there have been moments in the last couple of years where I've thought I don't know if I can stay here. So, yeah. um, you know, but uh, for now, there's worse places to seek refuge during a global pandemic. Yeah, exactly correct. Who'd have thought that, huh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's just unbelievable. But we're safe, we're healthy, and yeah. uh, hopefully when this all, you know, the pestilence clears, uh, people's appetite for music will return several fold. Mm. And, I, uh, I, I do hope that as well, that there's, there will be a thirst, right? So. Well, certainly people are, are buying instruments like it's going out of style, right. uh, which has been great for that aspect of of the industry yes uh but um hopefully that is also igniting you know as you said it's it, i'm the same way i mean i've been rediscovering a bunch of old stuff uh practicing some different things and thinking about things of oh i never really got into this person i think i'm gonna check that out you know mm -hmm. and, and and just enjoying enjoying music for what it is instead of uh you know it's all because as you know when you're always going it's it's like okay i gotta get this record done and then we gotta do this and you know i gotta concentrate on 
well, am I going to be representing X amount of songs in the set list that are from these records and all that other kind of stuff? And you're always in the state of having to move forward. <laughs> yeah, I always say it's like I've been on a hamster wheel for yes. like 20 years. Yes. Um, and so it's been kind of nice to be off that in a way. Like I say, I had to figure out how to get my own motivation going without that natural momentum that you find. Because, you know, even writing a song, for me, would start at soundcheck with the band and you jam sure. on something. And you're like, oh, that could be so. So, yeah, in a vacuum is is very different. And, uh, you know, I went up to my drummer lives in Gainesville, Raul um, Valdez, and uh, he, so he built his home studio when we we're doing these True Fire tracks. And I went up and we just played together in his in his spare room that's now his studio. That was the first time I'd played with the drummer since March. You know, and <sighs> this was a month ago or whatever. And uh, I came home feeling really, really good after that. I'm like, oh, my God. No, we didn't even have a bass player. I was just kind of leading him through the tracks. And then, sure. you know, I, I ended up playing bass on him as well. In fact, that's been – I've got this little Dan Electro bass here, this, and I've been just really loving playing bass, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Solo bass record or something. <laughs> 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 that is a surprise. Just what the people want. <laughs> okay, they're, they're clamoring for it. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Well, listen, my friend, I think we've, uh, boy, we've been chatting for a long time. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much, Greg. Yeah. Absolutely. And thanks for doing this. And, uh, boy, I hope to see you sooner than later and hopefully get to play with you again. And uh, right. too. in the meantime, stay safe. And uh, again, and it was a pleasure. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take it easy, Matt. Cheers, Greg. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.